Well, we're, uh, as I mentioned last week, during the uh, 9, uh, what it, 9.30 service and the uh, 11.15 service, we aren't just us as the worshiping church at Scottsdale Bible, but we're in with our Cactus Campus uh, over at Cactus and 25th Place, and then our venue here on this campus, Cross Campus, uh, also joins in with us. They have their own live worship, and then uh, they join in with us for the teaching time. So welcome, Cactus and, and venue. And I want to make a, a quick comment before we pray and dive into the Word, and it has to do with the upcoming Compelled by Grace campaign that's uh, we're going to be doing in the new year. If you might remember, on the Renew Weekend, at the end of October, I, uh, I took some time, as we celebrated 50 years, to talk about the future of our church. And, and I unveiled on that weekend that, that we have some huge, exciting things planned as we look into the next 50 years. We're just not sitting back on our laurels just wondering what to do. We, we have a plan and we're moving forward. And that plan, as you might remember, involved four key things. We're going to engage in a campus redesign, redesigning our campus to be more for the flow and the effectiveness, what buildings we have where, to better suit our growing church. Secondly, we're going to be doing more multi-site congregations. Cactus has been awesome. Where do we plan on more, three or four more in the next five years? We want to do aggressive church planting. In fact, our vision is to plant 10 churches in the next 10 years. And we want to pioneer some new frontiers in international ministries. And, and so I, I share that. I just sort of unveiled all that. And on January 13th, I'm going to explain to all of you the entire campus redesign, what we're doing and what the plan is, what this will involve, how long it'll take, and the fact that we need to raise money to do so when we start a capital campaign in February called Compelled by Grace. So I shared all that at the end of October. The problem is, is that whenever you unveil something like that, and then you got like a two-month lag between that and explaining all of it, you're in a no-man's land with communication. And, you know, in, in the church, I affectionately talk about what we call the underground communication network that the Bible actually calls gossip. That tends to happen in the church. And so, and you know, it's, it's hilarious to me that people think they can talk and that it won't get back to the pastor. I mean, I got nothing better to do than to find out what all you're talking about. So we know that there have been some things that, that you know, questions and concerns that people have uh, about, you know, all that we have unveiled. And, and so here's what I want to say, because we knew this would happen. We're, we're in the middle of December, we're, we're, we're doing tons for Christmas. Ton, I mean, we had an amazing week. We had 7,000 people at our Winter Wonder uh, last week. We had 2,000 kids at our... Yeah, you can clap at that. You know, we had 2,000 kids out here in the rain with 18 tons of snow Thursday night for our, our Winter Fest. I mean, you know, just amazing things going on in our church. And we knew that we would not be communicating a lot on this in order so we don't eclipse Christmas. But, but that kind of puts us into a communication no-man's land. So here's my simple point, is that if there were things that I said in the end of October that have caused you to have questions or concerns that can't wait until January 13th, and, and really all of January, because we're going to have tons of small group meetings on this as well, then I, I would encourage you to seek out an elder or seek out uh, one of our main pastors, we got lots of them here, and directly ask your question to them. Can you do that for me? Because what, what has sometimes happens, and I know this isn't any of you, but what sometimes happens is that when you don't understand something or you got an issue with something, you call Sally on the phone or you go to an enrichment class and, and, and you start talking to them about it, but they don't have the answer. 
And, and so before you know it, people go, yeah, that's a good point. And you're not going to the right people on it. And, and then all of a sudden, little rumors start. So, so what am I talking about? I mean, I'm telling you, this happens. I remember when we were, before we were hiring Troy, big deal. Remember, Bill, we were bringing this new worship guy in, and a rumor started that Jamie wanted to get rid of the choir. I don't know how that happened, honestly. I mean, and, and, and it got so bad that the entire choir was ticked at me. And so I went in to meet with them. It was in the summer of 08, and I met, the, met with the choir, and they looked like they wanted to, they didn't like me. I mean, it was just, I could tell by their looks. And, you know, one meeting diffused the whole thing. I said, I'm not looking to get rid of the choir. Some of my best friends are choir members. I'm not looking to get rid of the choir. And, and sure enough, we hired Troy, and he didn't do that. And then when we went to change some of the music, remember that a few years ago where, you know, instead of one size fits all, we decided to have a traditional service, a blended service. And again, the rumor started, Jamie hates hymns. Jamie wants to get rid of hymns. And I'm not kidding. It was like all over the church. And I'm like going, where did that start? I mean, I'm like going, to, so what? I like country music. I don't want to get rid of hymns. And so I had to meet with the orchestra and all these people and assure them of that. Do you see how this works? And let me tell you this, it just never honors God, amen? It just doesn't. I mean, some of them are benign things, but what happens is, is that it gets people who don't need to get all riled up and concerned, all concerned. So, so one of the things that's being said right now, and again, maybe you haven't heard me, is that Jamie wants to get rid of enrichment classes because we're going to redesign our campus. And, and let me just go over it, patently not true. Not true. And you'll see that in January. And so, again, as you hear these things, you know what I'd ask you to do if you ever hear me? Again, if this is not involved you, then let it go. But if you ever hear something like that, you know what I always try to do? I always try to believe the best in people. Somebody came to me, I approached Bill early and said, you know, well, Bill Epley is doing this. You know, you know what I do in my mind? I go, that doesn't sound like Bill. Might be, because we're all fallen, but that doesn't sound like him. And if I think that is him, I'm going to go to Bill and ask him, is that you? What I'm not going to do is go to Richard and say, hey, Richard, did you hear about Bill? You know, let me tell you. Because then all of a sudden, now what have I done? I, 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 I've, gained, I've joined the gospel, or the gospel, the, the gossip <laughs> chain. See, I don't even like the word gossip. It doesn't even flow off my tongue. And, and, and so I would just ask you guys to, to come directly if you have issues. Can we all do that? Give me a head nod. Cool. Because here's the deal. There's a lot of exciting things happening in our church right now. And I don't want the evil one to have any type of foothold, amen? Because we are in expansion mode. We're reaching more people. We're growing as a church. We've got amazing things planned. And I, and I believe the evil one would like to do nothing but sabotage this. And, and we can't let that happen. We need to stay together unified as a church, especially as we, we go through a lot of these growing pains. And so with that said, I, by the way, I hate giving these talks. Hate them, hate them, hate them, hate them. So we're going to turn to the Word right now, and this is what I do love to do. So let's turn to the Word, and as I do so, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness and for your grace and the fact that you are working so powerfully in the church that bends its knee to you. And Lord, as we've celebrated all this year, Scottsdale Bible Church has an amazing history of 50 years uh, of doing nothing but serving you on bended knee, and you've blessed her, and I'm grateful. And so, God, I pray that as we move forward, you continue to provide your hand of blessing and protection upon us. As we turn to your word now, Lord, to answer a single, simple, all-important question, I pray that you give us wisdom, that you take even some of us off guard as we ask the key question in life, the key question that everybody's asking this holiday season. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So what is that key question you're thinking? What is the question that is the most important question at Christmas time that people ask and sometimes don't get very clear answers, especially from Christians? It's the question, why Jesus? Why Jesus? I mean, why is Jesus Christ so important? I was on an airplane about a decade ago coming back from a study break in Jackson, Wyoming, and I got stuck on the tarmac. And this was before the days where they started cracking down on getting stuck on the, on the tarmac. And so I, we were like stuck for like four hours. And the gal next to me was reading a book by the Dalai Lama, and I just could not resist. I mean, this was like... <laughs> This is ordained by God. I mean, I'm thinking, and so after about a few minutes, I kind of leaned over to her and I said, I see you're reading a book by the Dalai Lama. Are you interested in Tibetan Buddhism? And she said, well, not really. I'm just kind of seeking spiritual things right now. And, and I said, well, have you ever considered the words of Jesus? And she gave me the answer that I've heard a thousand times. She said, why Jesus? What's so special about him? That was like an open door to share the gospel, isn't it? I'm so glad you asked. You see, I'm not sure a lot of Christians can answer that question. When we get asked that question, why Jesus, we say, well, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, that didn't answer it. Or people say, why Jesus? Well, he's really important. Yeah, but, yeah, but why? Well, why Jesus? Well, he, he died for you. Well, what, do you what, what does that mean? See, we throw little Christian things around, and we're not really always clear. And maybe even some of you here today or at Cactus Campus or in the venue are not clear yourself as to why Jesus. What is it that's so important about him? And so I want to ask and answer that in the time we have remaining today. And believe it or not, to answer this question, I'm not going to go to the four Gospels, though I believe the four Gospels do answer the question as to why Jesus. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not going to be part of our equation today. No, I'm going to take you to a book in the Bible that was, get this, was written specifically to answer the question, why Jesus? What's so important about him? It's a book that a lot of Christians don't read because it tends to be a complicated book. It's the New Testament book of Hebrews. So if you brought a Bible, I want you to open to Hebrews chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. I'm going to put the scripture up here on the screen. But I'm telling you, this entire book was written to help people understand why Jesus Christ is so important and what is so special about him in coming to and knowing God. And we're going to park in front of all of chapter 1 in the 25 minutes we have remaining. So let me read for you chapter 1. It's a little long, but it's worth the read. And as I read this to you, it will also appear up here on the screen or in the back of your outline. Read along, follow along, and ask and answer the question yourself right now. What is this telling me about why Jesus is so important? Here we go, Hebrews chapter 1. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. 
And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he, God, ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Again, you might see why people shy away from the book of Hebrews, right? It's like there's got to be like tons of quotes from the Old Testament, all this intricate theology. I mean, what is it saying here? Uh, you know, you guys know me, I'm a reductionist. Two things that this is telling us here uh, about why Jesus is so important. Two things that once you grab onto, the issue is forever solved. And here's the first thing, and that is because of who he is. Because of who he is. In other words, it's because of the precise identity of who Jesus is that makes him so critical in finding God. And who is he according to chapter 1 here? Well, get this. He's no more and no less than God himself. And that's right. What it's telling us here is that when you encounter Jesus, you are encountering God, the all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, all-sufficient creator and sustainer of all that we see and do not see. It's what theologians for 2,000 years have called the deity of Jesus Christ or you might have heard this word, the incarnation, which simply means God being incarnate in a human being, God becoming a human. You're saying, where's that? Two things, two ways that I want you to notice Hebrews 1 communicates to us, I think, in very clear language. And the first way is through direct references to Jesus' deity. Direct references to his deity. There's three of them here. The first one is found in verse 3. Look again at what it says. It says, and he, Jesus, is the exact imprint of his, God's, nature. Whoa. Now focus on those two phrases, that one phrase and that one word, the exact imprint of God's nature. There's one, Hebrew, or one Greek word that we've translated there, exact imprint. It's a Hebrew or Greek word that literally means a tool for engraving that makes an exact copy. So picture like a die for a coin that then when you put it on a piece of metal, the exact imprint of that coin or that die is now on the coin. And that's exactly what this word or this phrase means. And you say, well, big whip. It means that there's a part of God or an image of God that is in Jesus. Not so fast, however. It's not just saying that, but it's saying that God's exact nature is in Jesus. That word nature is the Greek word hypostasis that literally means substance or real essence. It's used in other contexts in the Bible and in Greek literature to refer to who someone really is. Are you starting to see? So it's saying who God really is, his substance, his essence, his nature has been imprinted upon Jesus, upon Jesus the man. 
So Jesus the man is the imprint of the Almighty God. And so I like how F.F. Bruce, a well-respected author who taught at the University of Manchester in England and is probably one of the foremost authorities in the 20th century about the book of Hebrews, comment on this passage. Look up here on the screen. He says, and I quote, just as the image and superscription of a coin exactly corresponds to the device on the die, so the Son of God bears the stamp of God's nature. Just as the glory is really in the radiance, now here it is, so the substance of God is really in Christ, who is its impress, its exact representation and embodiment. So Jesus Christ is telling us here is God. He has God's nature in human form. Now that doesn't grab you then. There's two other direct references here. Look at Hebrews 1 verse 6. It says, and again, when he, God, brings the firstborn Jesus into the world, he, God, says, let all God's angels worship him. Worship him. I I put there in yellow that little phrase, worship him. Now, now, Now let's try to understand what this is saying here, guys. Anybody here remember what the first commandment is in the Old Testament? You might have learned that in Sunday school. Let me read it for you. The first commandment in the Old Testament says this, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or a likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them and serve them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So the very first commandment, in the Old Testament was, don't worship anything but God. Nothing. Not an idol, not money, not your job, not other human being, only God. Now, with that understanding here, that the Old Testament forbids idol worship, it's the first of all the Ten Commandments, then why would the New Testament come along and while quoting the Old Testament itself, talk about angels as one who worships Jesus if Jesus himself was not God. Why in the world would they make a mistake like that? I mean, this would be one of the biggest blunders a Hebrew writer could ever make in the first century would to say, be say that the angels would worship Jesus if Jesus wasn't God. Because all a skeptic would have to do back then is say, what do you mean worship Jesus? You don't worship anybody, you dope, except God alone. That's like Old Testament 101. Unless, of course, Jesus is God. Then it tends to make sense. You see, I think this is a clear reference to Jesus' deity. And then if you're still not convinced, as if all of this were not enough, look at verse 8. It says, but of the Son of God, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your throne, O God. So, so isn't it interesting that Jesus here, while quoting the Old Testament, is given the title of God. And again, some have pushed back on this over the years and said, yeah, but, 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 but there's other instances in the Old Testament where they call somebody God with a small g, so how do you know here it's God with a capital G? That, that's, a, that's an interesting point. The reality is, though, is that of all the occurrences of the Greek word theos, which occurs 1,300 times in the New Testament and then countless times in the Old Testament, the vast majority of them refer to God as in capital G, God. There's a few instances where it's used of small g, but not very many. And when they are, isn't it interesting, the context makes it very, very clear. And here the context is trying to argue for Jesus' divinity. So what most Bible experts point out here is that certainly it would be G with a capital G because they're giving Jesus the title 
God. And so in Hebrews 1, I'm telling you, you have clear, direct references to who Jesus is. God, he's got God's exact imprint of his nature. The angels worship him, and he has the title God. Now, that's just the first line of evidence. The second line of evidence is equally as compelling, and that is found in the descriptions that Hebrews 1 here uses to describe Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. I'm going to put all the descriptions up here on the screen. Cactus and venue, you're going to appear on your screens. And as I list them and put them up here on the screen, I simply want to ask you to ask yourself one question. And that is that as you string together all these descriptions, who do you think this is describing? You ready? It says that Jesus is the heir of all things in verse 2. Ultimately, all things are going to go to him. It also says in verse 2 that he created the world. And then in verse 10 it says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. So Jesus is the one who's creator of all that we see and do not see. Genesis 1.1 tells us it was God. And then in verse 3 it says that he is the radiance of God's glory. Uh, We know that the glory of God is anything that emanates from him. And so when it says that Jesus is the radiance of his glory, it's what emanates from God. Verse 3 says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Omnipotence and sovereignty are given in describing Jesus. As we've seen, verses 4 through 7, he's much superior to the angels to the point that they even worship him. And then in verse 12, interesting, it says of Jesus that you are the same and your years will have no end. You're the same, you've always been, and your years will have no end. Kind of smacks of an eternal nature. And so again, my question to you right now is, when you hear these descriptions, who or what do you think these are describing? Here's the deal. I've known a lot of godly people in my life. And I've read a lot of godly people over the thousands of years of theological inquiry. John Calvin, Martin Luther, St. Francis, John Bunyan. I've read the greatest of the greats. And there are some awfully godly people living today and in the history of the world that we would show as models of what it means to follow God and find him this side of heaven. Yet I would never describe any of them using this kind of language, would you? I would never describe a human being as the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, laid the foundation of the earth, the radiance of God's glory, superior to the angels, upholding the universe by the word of his power, the same forever and ever. I think when you read descriptions like that, folks, they can only be reserved for one and one only, and that is God. Check out the rest of the Bible. you got phrases like that all over the place, and they're always tied to God. So why Jesus? Because of who he is, namely God. And the direct references and the descriptions in Hebrews 1 here, I think are very, very clear. Now before we move on to the second thing of why Jesus, uh, let me just quickly ask and answer the question, now now, now why is this so important? Because I know how some of you think. Some people, when they get to this point, will say, well, okay, big whip, Jamie. He's God. We all get that. That's why we celebrate Christmas and Easter, and that's why the Christian church gathers. He's God. Okay, I agree with that. But but why is that so important? That that is a great question for somebody to ask. And, And here's the reason. And that is many people today are trying to come to God, but they're trying to come to God not as he declared himself to be, but as either them, they, 
or others want him to be. And that's a grave mistake. In other words, let me just not put too fine a point on it. There are people today that come to God and they want to call him Allah. Or there are people who come to God and they want to call him Krishna. Or there are people that come to God and they want to see him as this way or that way. And I'm telling you, God, who is a God of personality, God, who is a God of intimacy and relationship, says, I have revealed myself to you in a certain way. I've revealed myself to you in Jesus Christ. And it is through Jesus Christ that I want to be known. Because when I appeared in human form, that's how I appeared. And that is my name. That is my essence. And that is how you are to come to me. And again, some of you say, well, God's being awfully stubborn about this, isn't he? Not really. I mean, let, let's, let me give you an inane example that just might bring, you, bring this home to you on how important this issue might be. And again, for Cactus and um, the venue, I'm going to use somebody here in the audience here, but you don't need to see him because nobody in the back can see him here, but I'm going to pick on my buddy Bill once again here. And Bill Epley has been our worship pastor in the past. He's a Sunday school teacher here in our church. A lot of our, our people know Bill and his wife, Ann. Happy anniversary, by the way, 50 years and uh, marriage. Amen. So imagine this. Imagine somebody came up to Bill uh, at a restaurant today and said, you're John Smith. And he said, no, my name's Bill. No, no, you're John Smith. In fact, you went to Chaparral High School, class of 1951. You were valedictorian. You were captain of the football team. And, and you were a straight-A student. I remember you, John. And Bill, you know, being the humble guy he is, would say, well, actually, you got me wrong. I, I, I'm Bill Epley, uh, and, and, and I wasn't valedictorian. I was a C student, and I wasn't uh, on, on the football team. I, I, I was head of the Tiddlywinks Club, and so you just got the wrong guy. It's, I'm not who you think I am. And those things happen, right? Somebody thinks that somebody is who he's not, and, 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 and then eventually the normal thing would be to say, okay, I guess I'm wrong, that's not John Smith. Imagine, though, and this is where it gets a name, imagine if the guy pushed it. Imagine if the guy said to Bill, no, you're John. I, I know you're John, and, and, and I'm not going to let you convince me otherwise. And then imagine if that guy gets Bill's contact information and starts writing him letters, giving him phone calls, going to his place of work, following him here at church, and the whole time calling him John and trying to talk about chaparral and all these other things. Let me ask the stupid question. What kind of relationship would those two people have? It'd be an awkward one, to say the least, right? Why? Because you and I all know that Relationship 101, one of the most fundamental things of relationship, is that you need to know who the other person is and relate to them in the essence for who they are. That's what makes marriage so hard. It's what makes parenting so hard, right? Because you want to get to know each other as you really are. One of the most hurtful things is to treat your child or your spouse in the way you want them to be, not in the way that they really are, amen? That's a recipe for disaster. And yet spiritually, we do it all the time. Somebody once said that God created humankind in his image and humankind responded by returning the favor. And it's true. We tend today, especially in our 21st century culture, to think it's okay to make God in whatever image we want him to be. I, I can't tell you how many times somebody will come to my office and we'll have a chat and they'll be saying, well, somehow they'll just let loose that they believe something about God. 
I believe this and this about God. And I'll say, well, where'd you get that idea? And I'm hoping they pull out their pocket New Testament and show me, right? But they don't. Many times people say, well, it's my own personal belief system. And I think, wow, you've been watching Oprah or something like that. I just think you, your own personal belief system. But that's what our world says. Our world says that we all, it's postmodernism. We all have our own personal belief system. As long as it works for you, then that's good. As long as you're happy, then that's good. And I sit there and go, no. If you believe certain things about God that are patently not true, that are not in line with how he's revealed himself, I know it's going to be harsh for some of you, then you're not knowing God. You can convince yourself all day long that those things are true, but they're not true. His name is not Allah. It's not Krishna. His name is Jehovah. His name is Yahweh, and he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And he wants to be known as he has revealed himself. And all I can tell you from experience, and we don't have time to go into this, is that it works. As many of you know, I didn't grow up a follower of Jesus. In fact, I was one of those guys growing up where I didn't even care why Jesus. I didn't want to know about Jesus. I didn't want to know about anything. I just wanted to get on with life. And yet I did, was a believer in God. I'd go to church twice a year, Christmas and Easter. Felt pretty good about myself. And then when I was 18 years old, I entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ through accepting Christ as Savior and Lord. And as I said before, everything went from black and white to technicolor. Honestly, I thought I knew God before that. If you had said to me when I was in high school, you believe, of course I'm a believer in God. I believe in God. Do you have a relationship with him? I said, yeah, yeah, leave me alone. Of course I do, you know. I was like, but when I got introduced to Jesus, then I understood God. Now I understood who God was and what he was like. And through seeing Jesus, I see the Father. Jesus himself said that I and the Father are one. If you want to know the Father, you need to know me. In fact, he was even more harsh. Remember this? He said, nobody comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now maybe that makes sense as to why. Because without Jesus, we don't know God. Why Jesus? Because of who he is. But that's only half the story. You've got five minutes and 20 seconds, but who's looking, uh, to, to, to do the second half of this. And we're going to save some of this for Easter. But here's the second reason that Jesus is so important. And you don't ever want to miss this one in talking to people. And it's not just because of who he is. It's because of what he has done. It's because of what he has done. And there's two things that Hebrews 1 tells us that he has done. And the first one is, is that he has provided a solution to our sin problem. What's that about? Look at verse 3 again. It says, After making purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Focus on those two words, purification and sin. This is not complicated. That word purification simply means to make clean. Picture something that's really dirty, like your car after this week's rain. And you take it through a car wash, and now it's clean. That word sin literally means anything that makes us as human beings dirty. And do I need to go into detail on that one? You all got things in your life that you feel guilty over, that you know are wrong, even a heart that you know is wrong at times. And that's all the Bible is saying. We all have been infected by sin. We all got dirtiness in our lives. And so the main reason that Jesus came to this earth was to go to a wooden cross, bear your sin upon himself, 
so that he might offer you purification, forgiveness, that then gives you access to God the Father. Does that make sense? We all got a problem with God. We're distant and separated from him. Jesus came to bring the forgiveness that we can't secure ourselves through what he did for us. That's the gospel. And so simply telling us here that the reason Jesus is so important is that without him, we're still stuck in our sins. And that that's a problem. But because he did come, there's now a way out through forgiveness of our sins. And God has offered all of us that, the whole world, in Jesus Christ. And all we have to do then is accept him. We accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And the Bible says through doing that, you have complete forgiveness of your sins, the guarantee of eternal life, and you've now entered in to a lifelong relationship with God that will carry you the distance. But make no mistake, it all hinges on Jesus and what he has done for us. And yet again, the sad thing is that there are actually people in this world who get that and deny him still and don't believe. And that I don't get. Let me close with an illustration, and I'll also close by filling in some blanks, but let me close with an illustration that, again, is, is kind of goofy, but it at least speaks to me. Let's see if it speaks to you. Uh, how many of you here in Scottsdale and over at Cactus and Venue, how many of you have a swimming pool here in, in, in Scottsdale? Don't be, it's, it's Scottsdale, you can raise your hand. Go ahead and, and just, if you have a swimming pool, many of you do. I mean, I just, I, I, I had a swimming pool in my house in London, Ontario when I was a pastor there, and that was kind of embarrassing. We just bought the house and had it. But, you know, in Canada, who needs a swimming pool? I mean, you know, but, but I did, I had one. And so I learned a little bit about swimming pools back then. And then here in Scottsdale, we did buy a house that has a small kidney-shaped swimming pool, only five feet deep, just so that the kids and Kim could cool off. And I jump in it once every two years or something like that. When I had a pool in Canada, I learned a lot about swimming pools. And it was one of those older swimming pools that had a, a liner in it. Some of you remember that. And you couldn't let it freeze over uh, because the liner would break. And, and so I learned that every year I needed to empty my swimming pool and in Canada, it was really easy. I just dove into the deep end and I pulled the plug. I mean, that's the way those swimming pools were made. And, and so he just went in, pulled the plug, and the thousands of gallons of water would, would, would drain out. When I first moved here to, to Scottsdale five years ago, I was trying to figure out how to care for this small pool I have. So I went to the pool store down at the corner, and the guy said, your water's really heavy. I'd never heard that before. This is a scam. What do you mean my water's really heavy? And, and he said, well, you know, I weighed it, and it's got all these skin cells in it, you know, from the previous owners. I'm thinking, gross. And he said, you know, and, and you need to replace the water. And I was like, oh, well, that doesn't sound good. Okay, i got to replace the water. So I kid you not, I went home, and I dove into the five-foot deep end, and I was looking for the plug. <laughs> and there's something down there, but it's not a plug. And I'm pulling up, like, oh, where's the plug in this thing? So I got back to the pool store. I said, where's the plug? And he said, there's no plug. You're like, what are you, an idiot? He said, you know, there's just, you, you got to use a sump pump. And I was like, well, who has a sump pump? Because we can rent you one. I said, this is a scam. I get it. All right. So I rent a sump pump. And then I said to the guy, I said, well, where, where do I pump the water to? Now, here's where it gets interesting. He said, well, if you don't have a drain like in your front yard, he goes, just pump it out to the road and it'll go down into the sewers. I thought that was interesting because where I came from in Cleveland, you know, we didn't have sewers where I lived. We had drainage ditches. And because we all had big lots out in the rural areas, you know, I never had a garden hose long enough if I had a pool to drain it in the drainage ditch. If I was in Cleveland, you know where I drain, would have drained my pool? In my neighbor's yard. That's what everybody did. 
So I'm going back to my house here in Scottsdale, just going, I'm so glad I don't have to drain my water into my neighbor's yard, because that would be awkward, to say the least. Now, now, now here's where this illustration gets interesting. Let's say for the sake of argument, I'm a dopey pastor, and I didn't know that I could drain it out by the street. Let's say for the sake of argument that I was going to drain my little 10,000-gallon pool into my neighbor's yard in hopes that when my neighbor came home, the water would all have seeped into the ground. See, I don't understand deserts. It would have seeped into the ground, and nobody would be the wiser. So say for the sake of argument that my neighbor, uh, who am I going to, is Richard. And so uh, I, I, I take a garden hose, I put the sump pump in, and I, and I drain 10,000 gallons of chlorinated water into Richard's yard. And as I get done, I see that the water is not seeping into the property very well. It's like flooded as property. And, and so being the man that I am, I pack it all up, I start to fill up my pool, and I go inside hoping that nobody doesn't notice, right? <laughs> and about three or four hours later, Richard comes home, and he looks in his backyard, and it's flooded with chlorinated water. And he realizes he's got a huge mess on his hands. And he looks over the fence to his pastor neighbor, and he sees the pool's only half filled. And he realizes right away what happened. For whatever reason, his dumb pastor emptied his pool into his yard. Now, here's where it gets interesting even more. Richard's a Christian. And so Richard knows he's not going to sue me because Christians don't sue other Christians. He also knows that he needs to forgive me. And because he's a godly man, right there on the spot, he forgives me. Just go with me with this, will you? He forgives me. <laughs> And then, even further, he knows that he doesn't want me to go on hiding in my home about this, so he decides to go to my door, and he knocks on the door. And, and, and I sheepishly open the door, I won't even look him in the eye, and he says, Jamie, I see you've been working on your pool. <laughs> and he says, I just want to let you know that you've done a really dumb thing, and it's going to be a pain to clean up, and it'll probably kill all my plants. He said, but I realize we all do stupid things, and I'm just here to let you know that I forgive you and I'm letting this go. And I really don't want you hanging on to this. I want to release you from this obligation, and I hope we can be friends. Now imagine at that moment, imagine, if I was to say to him, it's not me. I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't empty my pool into your yard. You're a crazy old man, and it's not me. And then I shut the door in his face and go back to my kitchen table. Wouldn't that be like the dumbest thing in the world to ever do? A normal person would look at Richard and say, I'm, I can't even believe you're going to forgive me for this. Was, I, let me tell you how stupid I was to do this. And, and please come in. Let's have a cup of coffee and thank you for being so understanding. That, that's what a normal person would do. See, see, here's what's happened with humanity. We have emptied our dirty, chlorinated water all over God's yard. That's what we've done. We might not have meant to. Some of us argue we didn't know any better, but we did. We have taken a sump pump, and we've pumped all of our dirty chlorinated water into God's yard. And God knows it, and he sees it. And then, like Adam and Eve, we hide. We go inside, we shut the door, and we hope he doesn't notice. But because God loves you and wants to offer you forgiveness, the Bible says he knocks on the door of your house. And when you open the door, he looks you in the eye, and he says, I know what you did, and it's really bad. It's going to kill all the plants in my economy, but I want to forgive you, and I offer you forgiveness, and I want to come in, and I want to talk to you about this, and I want to help you get on with life. And at that point, right at that point, 
we got a choice, don't we? We can either see it as the amazing gift it is in Jesus Christ and invite him in to be Lord and Savior of our life, or we could do the insane and say, it wasn't me. I don't know what you're talking about. And shut the door on God. It took me 18 years in my life until I was ready to open that door and invite him in. And it was the greatest decision I ever made. Why Jesus Christ? Because of who he is. He's God. It's God knocking at your door. And because of what he has done, he's decided to offer you forgiveness, a new lease on life that will take you all the way to eternity. And then lastly, before we pray, notice the second thing that he has done for us. And this we're going to pick up at Easter. And that is that he has been resurrected and glorified by the Father. Verse 3 says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 13 says, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. So Jesus was resurrected from the dead to prove, in case you had any doubt, that he is who he said he was. In case you've missed the whole point of today's message, let me show you one last thing and this will be done. Give me another click here, guys. I've learned in the last 31 years this. If I know anything about seeking God, I know this. If you seek God without Jesus and all the other avenues that are available to us today, it will end you up at yourself. That's transcendental meditation, uh, many forms of Buddhism, uh, lots of different world religions, new age spirituality. I, I know I'm talking candidly, but let's just call a spade a spade. I, I firmly believe that if you seek without Jesus, you're going to end up eventually back at yourself, which is not where you want to be. What the Bible says is that if you seek God through Jesus Christ, because he is God, and he has provided for you a solution to the biggest problem you have, which is your sin problem, you will end up at God. Jesus said it this way, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened, ask and it will be given to you. For him who seeks will find, to him who knocks the door will be opened, and him who asks, they'll get the answers. But isn't it implicit in Jesus' words there that you have to seek him, ask him, and knock at his door? Duh, that's what he was saying there. And he promised that if you do that, you'll find. So for many of you who have found already, who've opened up the door and let him in, man, be grateful. The number one thing God wants you to do is you focus on Christmas this year is be grateful for what he's done for you. Be grateful, worship him as the coming king into your life. And if you're seeking him here today, maybe today is a day for you to receive him. So Cactus Venue in here, let's all bow and let's pray and let's receive Jesus into our lives. God, I thank you that you have come to us in the form, the man, Jesus Christ, and that, Lord, he was so much more than we could ever ask or imagine that Jesus truly is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, God of God's come to us. And Father, I pray that as we receive him this Christmas season into our lives as Lord and Savior, that God you would truly transform us from the inside out, make us the more loving, peaceful, hope-filled, other-centered, faithful followers of Jesus that you want us to be. And Lord, if there's anybody here today who is finally ready to receive Christ right where they sit, they, they pray a prayer similar to this. They say, God, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you made me. I recognize and honor my sin and my need for a Savior. I know that you're knocking at the door of my life, and I open the door, and I invite you in. 
to be Lord and Savior, forgiver and leader of my life from this point forward. God, if anybody was to pray that prayer today, pray you give them that immediate assurance of their salvation, that they are yours, that you are theirs, and that nothing can now ever change that and give them joy. God, use us this week, we pray. Use us to be able to answer intelligently the question that so many will ask at some point in their life, why Jesus? May we be clear. I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. We all say together as a church, Amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.